0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, CSF pressure and glaucoma.
1: I was wondering, why am I not having the symptoms of angle closure glaucoma or a central retinal artery occlusion? Because I know that if I dive just 33 feet, The pressure in my eye goes up 760 millimeters of mercury.
0: First this. In order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here, requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast program. Dr. Burdahl declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. When we think about glaucoma, we think about the relationship between intraocular pressure and the optic nerve. But far more of the optic nerve passes through CSF than through aqueous and vitreous. And yet, according to John Burdal, even this doesn't get to the heart of the matter, which is the relationship between IOP and CSF pressure and its effect on glaucoma. John Burdal, welcome to A Scene From Here. I'm going to start out with a kind of a trick question. What is glaucoma?
1: Well, you know, that's a, that's a question that's up for debate, but the definition of glaucoma is kind of an unsatisfying one. Uh, you know, it's an optic neuropathy with characteristic nerve changes and characteristic visual field loss, but I don't feel like I walk away from that definition really having an understanding of what glaucoma is. And the other part of it that's conspicuously absent is that there's no IOP in the definition of glaucoma, although everybody that you talk to thinks about IOP and we drill holes in the eye to try and lower the IOP to prevent the progression of glaucoma, it's not in the formal definition.
0: We as ophthalmologists often talk about intraocular pressure as if that were the only pressurized space to which the optic nerve is exposed. But it isn't.
1: Yeah, correct. So, the optic nerve travels through two pressurized spaces. The intraocular space, which we know very well, and the intracranial space, and in fact, the majority of the optic nerve spends its time in the, in the subarachnoid space, which is characterized by the CSF pressure. But before we talk about the role of CSF pressure, I want to talk a little bit about the, what IOP is. When I started thinking about IOP, I always thought about it as the pressure inside the eyeball. But it's really not. What we're really measuring with IOP is the transcorneal pressure difference. Basically, we're taking a Goldman applanator, we're flattening the cornea, and saying that's how much pressure it takes to flatten the cornea, and we're saying that the pressure inside the eyeball is that much higher than atmospheric pressure. So, And it's not one of those misnomers that doesn't mean anything. It really betrays how we think about ILP. What we're saying is that the transcorneal pressure difference matters, but why would the pressure across the cornea matter in glaucoma? And what my argument was is that the transcorneal pressure difference is really a surrogate for the translaminar pressure difference, and it might not be that good of one.
0: On that same theme, John, what role does the pressure differential across the lamina cribrosa play in the pathogenesis of optic neuropathies?
1: We know that intracranial pressure and CSF pressure, and I'm going to use the two terms synonymously, that intracranial pressure matters. At the optic nerve head. We see it in diseases like pseudotumor cerebri all the time where the intracranial pressure goes up and we see optic nerve head swelling. Another way to think about that is in ocular hypotony after glaucoma surgery. There's a situation where the eye pressure is low, intracranial pressure is higher, again we see optic nerve head swelling. So our hypothesis was that the exact opposite is true in glaucoma where the eye pressure is higher than CSF pressure causing the optic nerve to cut posteriorly.
0: John, what was the rationale for this study?
1: Uh, Well, it started actually when I was on a scuba dive. Um, I was diving, and instead of enjoying my beautiful surroundings, I was wondering, why am I not having the symptoms of angle closure glaucoma or a central retinal artery occlusion? Because I know that if I dive just 33 feet, the pressure in my eye goes up 760 millimeters of mercury. And so as I got to thinking about that, I got to thinking that, you know, the absolute pressure in the eye really probably isn't what's, what matters. Forces are only generated in physics by pressure differentials. And we know that, the, like we talked about already, the pressure difference across the cornea is what matters. So I was extrapolating that to where's the damage in glaucoma it's at the optic nerve head, so maybe it's the pressure across the lamina that matters. So that's where I came up with the idea to pursue this. Some others had suggested the idea. I didn't know that when I did my initial literature search, but there was no data out there in humans about CSF pressure and glaucoma.
0: So we tried to devise a study to explore it. Can I get you to describe the design of your study? Sure. So uh, we tried to do this initially
1: here at Duke, but it's a very hard thing to find a large number of patients that have glaucoma that have spinal taps. And we weren't able to find that here. And, you know, with the invasive nature of trying to detect CSF pressure, we wanted to explore it retrospectively because it was just an idea. So we went to the Mayo Clinic, and with the help of uh, Doug Johnson, we looked through their enormous um, multi-specialty medical record and found 30,000 patients that had had spinal taps from over the last 10 years. From that group of patients, we found the ones that also carried a diagnosis of glaucoma and compared that to a control group that did not have glaucoma.
0: John, what were your inclusion and exclusion criteria?
1: Sure. So, first thing that we did was we found all the people that had spinal taps, and then they also had to have their CSF pressure measured during that spinal tap. Then we divided into two groups, the group that had primary open-angle glaucoma and a control group. The glaucoma group had to have a diagnosis of glaucoma by an ophthalmologist at Mayo, they had to have characteristic optic nerve changes and characteristic visual field changes. That was, and um, and IOP was not in that definition. Then the control group was characterized by patients that did not have glaucoma. They had a diagnosis of either cataract, presbyopia, hyperopia, or myopia, just to create a cross-reference list. And they had to have no glaucoma per eye exam. They also had an age greater than 55 because of the. Older age of glaucoma patients in general
0: to make it a valid control group. John, why were these patients having lumbar punctures?
1: Well, the, the lumbar punctures were performed for no reason that was related to their eye disease, and the eye, uh, the eye findings were they were not referred for an eye exam because of anything that they found on their lumbar puncture. The most common indication for lumbar puncture was altered mental status or headache. Meningitis, uh, history of stroke, uh, rule-out carcinomatosis, those were other reasons for, for lumbar puncture to be performed, but regardless of indication for lumbar puncture, the glaucoma group had lower CSF pressures across the board.
0: John, I just want to make this point clear. The indications for lumbar puncture in the glaucoma group and in the control group were basically the same.
1: That's correct. That's correct. They were very similar between the two groups. You know, there were a couple of indications that were one patient in one group had this, but for the vast majority, it was uh, altered mental status, headache, rule-out meningitis, and they were similar between the groups.
0: John, what were your findings? So we found that indeed
1: intracranial pressure was lower in the glaucoma patients as compared to the control group. So the control group had an intracranial pressure of about 13 millimeters of mercury, where the glaucoma group had a CSF pressure of about 9 millimeters of mercury. And that 4 millimeter mercury difference may not sound like a lot, but it was significant to the 10 to the 5th level. And if you look at population-based studies where they compared one large group of people that had glaucoma to a group that didn't, they would often find a difference of about four millimeters of mercury. And we will, you know, drill hole in people's eyes to try and lower their pressure by just four millimeters of mercury. So the number, although it sounds small, really may not be.
0: Was CSF pressure independent of intraocular pressure?
1: Yeah, CSF pressure, intraocular pressure was not predictive of CSF pressure, nor was CSF pressure predictive of intraocular pressure.
0: They were independent variables.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: The current definition of glaucoma leaves intraocular pressure aside. But do you think that in a sense we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater, that intraocular pressure is important, but as it relates to CSF pressure?
1: Our knowledge of glaucoma doesn't allow us right now to throw out the baby or the bathwater. But I think that your question is really a good one. It could be that intraocular pressure only matters in the setting of what is the intracranial pressure and that the only thing that really matters is the pressure difference across the lamina cribrosa. Now, this is way beyond the scope of the study we did, and it needs to be borne out with experimental studies and such, but the idea being that the retrograde axonal transport has to swim upstream for all your life from that low CSF pressure into that high intraocular pressure and over time the nerves just can't keep up and it slowly dies away.
0: John, your study points to the pressure head across the lamina cribrosa, the translaminar pressure difference as an important variable. What do you think's going on biomechanically at the lamina when the pressure differential is large?
1: Yeah. So, our study didn't specifically address that, but I have some ideas that I'd share with you. You know, we know that the lamina cribrosa is posteriorly bowed in glaucoma, and it seems to me that it makes sense that if you had a high eye pressure and a low CSF pressure, that creates a force generated posteriorly, causing a posterior bowing of the lamina cribrosa. Others have suggested that maybe there's some scarring that occurs in the optic nerve and it pulls that nerve back, but I think a mechanism that at least intuitively to me makes more sense is a posterior bowing directed by a force differential across the optic nerve. Another thing that may be worth mentioning is that the lamina cribrosa is thinner in glaucoma patients than in controls. And what this could mean is not only does that axonal transport have to swim upstream, but it has to swim upstream at a higher current. Basically, what I'm saying is there's a gradient there that's higher because that difference occurs over a smaller distance through a thinner lamina cribrosa.
0: John, let me see if I understand this point because this is a, a new concept to me. That you're saying that the lamina cribrosa acts almost like locks in a canal. That the fewer number of locks, that the the shorter the lamina cribrosa, the bigger leaps the axonal flow has to make. Yeah,
1: right. So it, if the pressure difference was the same there, it'd be like floating up or down a lazy river. If the if the pressure difference is a little bit steeper, it's kind of like going up against the current. But if, it's, if the lamina cribrosa is really thin, you've got a very large pressure differential over a short distance. It's like swimming up a waterfall.
0: John, do you know of any papers that support the idea of a shorter lamina representing a sharper pressure gradient across which axonal flow has to take place?
1: Yeah. So Yost Jonas has been a proponent of this idea that CSF pressure may matter, and he's done a number of studies in cadaveric eyes showing that the lamina cribrosa is posteriorly bowed and thinner. But none that tell us that yes, um, a thinner lamina cribrosa puts you at risk for glaucoma. It could be the other way around that glaucoma creates a thinner lamina cribrosa. So the the chicken and the egg question does apply.
0: John, this is an enormously exciting study. But what do we do with it? Therapeutically or diagnostically?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of things. One we got to find out if it's really true. A retrospective study as you know has many warts and and this one included. But I do think that it is a very exciting new finding and if it can be corroborated with some prospective evidence, that would be uh enormously helpful. Then the real question is how can we help these poor patients that are suffering from glaucoma? Well, <laughs> If this is true, we could raise the intracranial pressure, which may have a whole lot of problems of its own, but if you could find a drug that could reliably, predictably raise the intracranial pressure a few points and give some drops on the front side and a pill on the back side to raise the pressure, that may be one solution. But another major hurdle that we have is the only way to get reliable intracranial pressure right now is through lumbar punctures and nobody wants to undergo a lumbar puncture, if we can devise a non-invasive way to measure intracranial pressure, that would be a huge boon to studying this idea.
0: John, is there anything that you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, um, I was going to say that, and I didn't sneak it in there, that there's a lot of studies that have shown that axonal transport is stopped in experimental glaucoma at the level of the lamina cribrosa. So it does seem like that's where the action's at.
0: John Burdall, thank you so much.
1: Thanks a lot, Josh. I really, really appreciate it.
0: John Burdall comes to us from Duke University Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. His paper, Cerebrospinal Fluid Pressure is Decreased in Primary Open Angle Glaucoma, appears in the May 2008 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Burdall or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 20 8275 Or Skype, JYoungMD. As Seen From Here is a production of of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.